Well, good evening. All right. I don't expect this is going to be boring at all, but if somebody besides you starts to fall asleep, just pinch them. If you have your Bible, look, open it to the beginning of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Right before he ascends into heaven, Jesus tells his followers to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, and they do. Look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, what do they do while they're waiting? Well, what they do, what Luke describes in verses 12 through 26 is they devote themselves to two things. Can anybody see what these two things are that they devote themselves to while they're waiting? To prayer, and what else? No, not doesn't say to the apostles' teaching. Close. Prayer was one. What else do they devote themselves to? Now, this, it doesn't actually say it, but you see that they did it. Any ideas? No, no. It's, it's scripture. Think about this. They're, they've devoted themselves to prayer, and then Peter stands up and says, Judas died, and as I've been reading scripture, this is what it says to us. And he quotes the Psalms. Same thing happens on the day of Pentecost, right? How, they, they have this miracle occur with tongues, and remember, Peter stands up and says, and he just starts quoting scripture. What is the implication? The implication is he's been asking the question they've been asking. What's going on? We're in a very complicated moment, and we can't really figure all this out. And just because God is really with them and giving them lots of instruction doesn't mean they're not having to go to scripture, go to prayer, and discern things. They've devoted themselves to scripture and prayer. And then Jesus keeps his word. He sends the Holy Spirit, and off they go. Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the kingdom goes forward. Chapter 1, Jesus goes up. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the Spirit comes down. Chapters two, chapter 2, verses 5 through the end of the book, the kingdom goes forward. And this is the part of the story that, that the book of Acts focuses on. I mean, think about that. Chapter 1, Jesus ascends. Four verses in chapter 2, the Spirit descends. And then from 2, verse 5, until the end of chapter 28, is about the kingdom going forward. So what is the book mainly about? It's mainly about most of the real estate of the book is dedicated to the kingdom moving forward. In fact, you could think of the passage that Robert read to us, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You could call this the table of contents of the book of Acts. After the day of Pentecost, the kingdom moves forward in that order. Acts 1.8 is the table of contents. In chapters 1 to 7, we see the kingdom of God spreading throughout Jerusalem. And then in chapters 8 to 12, we see the kingdom of God spreading from Jerusalem into Judea and then in Samar into Samaria. And then from chapters 
13 until the end, you see the kingdom of God moving out of Samaria to the end of the earth, which is kind of code language in the historical documents. Pompey, when he comes back to Rome, he talks about the end of the earth. That's another way of saying to the extent of the Roman Empire, all of the known world. So when you're reading Acts, you should imagine in your mind something like a map with a drop of ink dropped on it and that just spreading out. Can you see that in your mind? And so while you're reading the book, every now and then, Luke, the author, stops the story and he gives you a summary, a report. Look in chapter 2, verse 47. Praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. One of the ways you can read that is you could, in your mind, read it, Day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were coming into the kingdom or those in whom the kingdom was overcoming their lives. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men who came, of the men came to be about 5,000. Look at chapter 6. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Remember chapters 1 through 7, it's the kingdom moving, spreading out into Jerusalem. And you get to chapter 6 and it's spreading all through Jerusalem, including the priests. Then look at chapter 9. Remember chapters 8 through 12, it's going into Samaria and Judea. Look at chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see, all through the book, Luke stops and and, and tries to interrupt your imagination to say to you, pay attention to what's happening. The kingdom is spreading, and this goes on and on. It's chapter 11, 24, chapter 12, 24, chapter 16, 5, chapter 19, verse 20, chapter 28, 30 to 31. All through the book, every couple of chapters, the author interrupts to give you a summary of what's happening. See, you're supposed to, in your mind, imagine that when Jesus said, the Spirit is going to come on you, you're going to have power and, and then it's, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is like ever-increasing concentric circles. So you should read the book of Acts, and in your mind you should see the kingdom spreading and growing. It, it's, it's like watching a weather report and a hurricane, and they project out, you know, those kind of red bands that this is the energy that's going to push out from it. it it's like... Um, you read these summary statements every couple of chapters. They just pop up. And Luke, the author, he's giving you this image that the kingdom is moving. It's spreading out like ripples from a stone dropped in water. You, you should imagine that. And you should just see Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the way until you get to the end and it's in Rome itself. Now, The book of Acts is about that. It is about the kingdom of God spreading, moving forward. 
spreading out all over the earth. Now what I want to do tonight is I want us to not take that big picture, but I want us to dive down and look at two, in particular, two characteristics of the kingdom moving forward. Two aspects of the kingdom's growth. Two aspects that I think for the Church of the Lamb and the Church of the Incarnation really matter for us at this time. Over and over in the book of Acts, we see this first issue. We see that when it comes to the kingdom moving forward, it's God who's doing, who's making that happen. Over and over, Luke provokes you to see that God is the source. He's the power. He empowers the kingdom to grow and to move forward. It's because of God's initiative. It's because of God's power that the kingdom of God crosses formidable religious barriers and ethnic barriers and relational barriers and geographic barriers. Over and over in the book, we see that God is the driving force. God is that hurricane. He's the energy. For example, turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 is the climax of the first half of the book. Acts 28 is the climax of the last. Okay, Acts 12 is the climactic moment of the, of the kingdom moving through Jerusalem. What happens in the first paragraph? Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, okay, so he, he killed the number two person in the church, James. And he, he saw, oh, that worked. You know, I didn't get too much pushback. So now who's he going to go for? Now, who, who, who do you go for if you get away with getting number two? You go after number one. Who's that at this point? Who's the leader of the church in the first 12 chapters? Peter is. That's right. So he kills James, the number two leader, in verses 1 and 2. That works out good for him, so he goes after Peter. Look at verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison. All right, so we've got a murderous king. He seized Peter, puts him in prison, delivers him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the Peter, to the people. So Peter was in prison, but earnest prayer was being made for him to God by the church. And then we get to verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, centuries before the door, were guarding the prison. It couldn't be worse. I mean, forget that you grew up in Sunday school. If you're just reading this as a piece of literature, it can't be worse. He's already done it. We know what this guy does next. And look at, look at the, the literary de artistry. Peter's plight couldn't be more serious. Every detail adds weight to the sense of despair and helplessness. And then we get verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him 
and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. The chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. He did so. He said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision, which is what you would think. I mean, this stuff is hard to believe. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, right, can you imagine that? Oh, this isn't a dream. I'm, I'm really out of You know, Peter was preparing to die. I mean, because that's what happens next. Next thing he knows, he's standing out here. When he came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent the angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, what they were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together. When he knocked on the door, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized her voice, and in her joy, what happens? She doesn't even open the, gate, the door. She runs back to tell everybody. He got out of prison, right? Now, he's waiting outside, a wanted man, right? Knocking on the door. So what do they do? They don't believe her. So then they argue about it. All the while, there's Peter outside the front door. Let me in, let me in. It, it's comical. But can you see Peter? Can you see him preparing himself to die like James? This angel shows up. He wanders around, benumbed, and then he comes to his senses. Part of the point of all of this is to say God is the secret source of the kingdom moving forward. The incredible progress of the kingdom. God is the one that is the source of over and over in the book of Acts. Acts, we find stories like this where God is behind the scenes making it happen. So that's the first point. So what do we do with this? I think we pray. I think Church of the Lamb, Church of the Incarnation, we need to pray more than we've ever prayed. Don't you want the kingdom to come in our city? Don't you want the refugees who have enormous barriers they're facing? Don't you want this to be a great city to have landed in for them? Don't you want the statistics of social ills to decrease? I mean, all this stuff that Dee has talked about, don't you want that? So we ask God to do that. We ask Him to. We beg Him to. We call on Him to do it. We find the ills and we name them. And we take them to God. And we ask God by His power to, for the kingdom to spread through Harrisonburg, for the kingdom to spread through Elkton. If you know that you have a rich daddy and your car is broken, you ask your daddy to help you, right? If you know that you've got a father who has all this power and he's done it before and you're living in a city and he, and he told you, I want you to ask me to bring my kingdom into your city. I want, this is the most fundamental thing we're taught to pray. God, bring your kingdom on earth. Let your will, let Harrisonburg be heaven on earth. Let Elkton be, let, let life in Elkton be the way it will be when heaven and earth are once again reunited. We pray. That's the first point. The second point about the progress of the kingdom that the book of Acts not only makes 
clear, but it brings it up over and over again. Is this. God is the power, but the church is the means. Isn't that what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? And the Spirit of God will pour out on you, and you will be my witnesses. So you see power, spirit, and you see the church. You there is plural. It's not individual. It's the church. You will be my witnesses. Some form of this word witness is used 23 times in the book of Acts. We are the means that God uses for his kingdom to advance in the valley. And we're the means not in a passive way. We're the means when we bear witness. Witness is the way the church in the power of the Spirit is is God moving His kingdom forward. So one of the most important things to do with the book of Acts is to say, what does that word witness mean? Because if that's the thing we do, we should know what we're supposed to do. Right? So if God's job is to pour out the power, and then our job is with that power to witness, we've got to know exactly what does it mean to witness. So what does it mean for us to be witnesses? Well, that's really, really interesting in the book of Acts. I think a lot of us tend to think about witnessing as some version of evangelism where we go out to people And we tell them the story of the life of Jesus in such a way that if they've got doubts or something, they convert. I think most of us at Incarnation have an allergic reaction to the idea of evangelism. I think a lot of us have seen a way of doing it. We know we don't want to do it that way. And yet we face here At the beginning of Acts, it's God's power working through us as witnesses. Now, there's some truth in this idea that witness is about you talking to people so that they convert. But just sideline that because that's only a piece of it. In the book of Acts, the word witness, as you read through the book, you begin to notice, to put it plainly, In the book of Acts, the action of witnessing is a group of people, the church, having Jesus' pattern of life. This is the way the kingdom moves forward. You will be my witnesses. You will, in your life, have my pattern of life. See, the book of Acts shows us the kingdom moving forward by God's power through the church being a group of people who embody the pattern of life that Jesus had in the book of Luke. And as they take this pattern of life into the world, as they live the Jesus pattern of life, this is what the book of Acts means by witness. Now, this is not meant to say that they never use words. No, they do. More than 30% of the book of Acts are sermons about events. I mean, think, look, look back at chapter 2. 
How many verses does the actual event of Pentecost take up? In Acts chapter 2. Y'all can talk back. That's a real question. Four. And all of and, and from chap and from verse 14 to verse 41 is Peter explaining what happened in those four verses. Um, remember it says in chapter 1, and in, in, in my former book, Theophilus, I told you all that Jesus began to what? Do and teach. So I'm not trying to make a disparaging remark on using this idea of uh, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. That's, uh, I know that's not right. Words are necessary. 30% of the book is, is sermons, words, explanations. But being a witness, while it does mean using words to talk about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and how that makes him the Lord and how that makes him the way to be saved from all of the muck and mire of your life, this is only part of what it means. Now, it's part of what it means because that's part of what Jesus did in his life. In his life, he explained and interpreted to people the kingdom of God. In his life, he talked about how who he was, what that meant. But once again, the point is the church as the witness to Jesus' resurrection, what this means is that the church lives the pattern of life that Jesus led, that led to a resurrection. And to put it plainly, the church and the main characters in the book of Acts, the shape of their lives looks like the shape of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke. For example, look at chapter 6, Stephen. In chapter 6, verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, if that statement was made in Luke's gospel, who would it be referring to? Who did signs among the people? Who was filled with grace and power in Luke's gospel? Jesus. This is a Jesus description, but it's, it's Stephen. Stephen's got the shape of life, the pattern of living that Jesus has. But it doesn't stop there. Because Jesus' life wasn't all about what he, his powerful actions. There were some other aspects of Jesus' life. Look at verse 15. They get mad at him. They decide to kill him. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. A heavenly being. Something from heaven. They decide to kill Stephen and look at the account of his execution. Chapter 7, look at verse 59. And as they were stoning him, so they got these big rocks, a huge mob of people, they're throwing these rocks at him. It was a way of executing people. They're pounding him with stones until it kills him, until it crushes him. And as they stoned him, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Who prayed that prayer when they were being killed for righteousness sake in the gospel of Luke? And how did he pray it? Into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. What else did Jesus pray? To Look at this. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. Who else did that for their executioners? Jesus did. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We could do this with character after character. We could show you, we could see that Luke describes them as re-embodied Jesuses. As people who are embodying the life, the pattern of life of Jesus. This happens with Paul, by the way. Later on, when Paul is talking about Stephen's crucifixion, his, his version of crucifixion being stoned, look at chapter 22. Look how Paul describes Stephen's execution. Look at Luke, Acts chapter 22, verse 20. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed... This word, shed blood, is in Greek, it's a technical word for the pouring out of the blood of a sacrifice. So when Paul is later reflecting on what happened to Stephen, he said his blood was, the, was a sacrificial offering. Now, who else in the Bible's blood is a sacrificial offering? And you get this all through the book. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm saying the pattern of Jesus' life was a cruciform pattern. I'm saying that to be a church who bears witness to Jesus is to be a church when you look at that church, they have a cruciform shape to them. This is what it means in the book of Acts to bear witness to Jesus. It doesn't mean to stand off and talk about Jesus in some objective fashion, safely ensconced in some witness box. It means that the church reenacts the life pattern of the suffering Christ. They suffer for his name. They are put on trial. Peter is put on trial. John is put on trial. The apostles, Stephen, Paul, they're all put on trial. Who in Luke's gospel was put on trial for talking about the resurrection? They face the possibility of death. Peter faces the possibility of death. John does. The apostles do. Stephen does. Paul does. Jason does. Alexander does. You can go on character after character after character. And all through, the, all through it, just like Jesus, they are proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. In short, to witness is to embody the cruciform pattern that really does culminate in resurrection. So yes, the book of Acts tells the incredible story of the progress of the kingdom of God spreading through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But as you read the book, you notice this is not a triumphalistic progress. It's not a conquering military victory bowling through places and winning battles. This progress, wonder of all wonders, happens the same way Jesus' progress happened. The same way Joseph's progress happened. Remember Joseph? Vision, 
going to lead these people? But what is the route he takes to get there? Betrayal by a brother. Cast into a pit. You see, Joseph is the prefiguration of this same pattern. And we see this <coughs> over and over and over. The, the book of Acts tells the story of the progress, but it is a progress marked by, here it is, cycles of rejection and persecution. This is progress with opposition rejection and persecution after all look at the last and in this tension it stands throughout the book look at the last two verses of the book of acts here is paul the hero of the second store the second half of acts he lived in rome two whole years at his own expense welcoming all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of god and teaching about the lord jesus christ with all boldness and without hindrance Here's Paul in prison, by the way, having to pay his own upkeep in prison. And yet somehow that's progress. Which, by the way, is what we see in in Luke, right? Somehow Jesus being crucified is actually progress, right? We all believe that. What Luke is begging you is to believe that about your own life. What Luke is begging the church is to believe that about the life of the church. All this stuff we've been talking about, the kingdom moving forward, the kingdom moving forward into Elkton, it's going to require your death. The kingdom kingdom moving forward in Harrisonburg and in the valley, it's going to require our death. Jesus told us this, didn't he? You got to carry your own cross. The progress of the kingdom in the book of Acts is constituted by both joy and suffering. Remember Acts chapter 12? Can you imagine James' mother? I'm sure they were begging God to save James's life. You know they were. What, what was it like when James's mother interacted with Peter's mother? Why'd you get an answer to the prayer? Why'd your son live? Can you, can you see right in the middle of all this, there's the suffering, the mysterious suffering, but there's the progress. And it's not progress despite the suffering it's the suffering itself is the progress somehow it constitutes the progress and remember the story of our church so what month are we in may in may of 2010 i was i had had a breakdown because i was at a church that ravaged me and it destroyed me and something in me broke and I sat in my garden in a lawn chair weeping and I couldn't do anything my parents came and picked up our children my wife packed up our house loaded me in a car and drove me to some land that my family owns in Louisiana and for six weeks I'm clearing a field I'm weeping. I'm utterly incapacitated. I'm broken. And then I say to Janelle one day, I think I need to go and be a doorkeeper in the house of Dan Clare. He knows how to plant Anglican churches. I just tried to plant one and it destroyed me. I'm going to drive into town because we don't have cell phone signal. 
And I'm going to call this Dan Clare guy. I've only met him once. But whatever, when I met him, the way he's doing church, that's what I want to do. So I get in my car and I drive into Cachata, 16 miles down the road. So, something like that. I turn on my phone and there's a voicemail from this Dan Clare who I met once before. And he said, Aubrey, there's a group of people in Harrisonburg. I'd like you to come meet them. I think you fit them. I think y'all ought to start a church together. This group of people, it was a group of people who themselves had just been crushed by a church situation. I remember the first day we met. We sit on the back of Ed and Esther's porch, and um, I had just experienced a group of people who did not want a pastor to lead them, and they had clobbered me. And so I was saying to this group, I hope that you believe in pastoral authority because I'm not up for negotiating on that stuff anymore because that hurts too bad. And um, <clears throat> this was, Ed responded, because they had just experienced an overreach of pastoral authority. And so when he heard me saying that, he thought, yeah, we've been there before. And um, Dan, in God's grace, Dan mediated all of that. And then Esther said to me later that night, Aubrey, I hope you know that this is a group of suffering people. I think one of the great graces of incarnation that led then also into Lamb is that we suffered. Our church was born in suffering. It's what brought us together. Somehow, in suffering, the kingdom advances. And as I think about many other people who have come into the life of our church since then, how many of the people in our church are here because of suffering? It's remarkable. It is a thing that has happened among us. And when I read the book of Acts, I see that the kingdom moves forward in suffering. Just like the kingdom moved forward in the gospel of Luke. Can you imagine in Acts chapter 12, can you imagine if James's mother, why, why does my son die and Peter get out of jail free? But apparently the early church had interpreted suffering not just as some miscellaneous event of a, a moment of the world being messed up. <coughs> no, they interpreted the suffering as the sign that they were on the leading edge of the kingdom moving forward. We are now the representatives of Jesus who is the Lord. And it's no surprise that the principalities and powers are going to come after us just like they came after him. And the suffering we go through for the sake of witnessing to Jesus and the resurrection, the suffering we go through is a sharing in the messianic sufferings. The suffering is, is, is the badge that indicates we are Christians. Jesus said in John, don't be surprised if the world hates you. There are other types of suffering. I mean, not all of the people in our church are here because of suffering for righteousness sake, although there's a, there's a lot of that in our church. There's other types of suffering in the Bible and in our church. Some of you are suffering, and it's more along the lines, not of Acts, but of Romans chapter 8, where Paul tells us that the whole creation is groaning like a woman about to give birth. Some of you are suffering in a much more meaningless way. 
the group that started incarnation, we were suffering for righteousness sake on all sides. But some of you are suffering in a more meaningless way. Suffering which is not related to being a witness for Christ. It's a suffering of when your child dies. Or your body turns against you with cancer. And what does Romans 8 tell us about this? It tells us that in those moments of meaningless suffering, when you can't pray, when you can't find the words, when you don't even know what to say, when there is no logical explanation in those moments, Romans chapter 8 teaches us that we have to learn how to trust that the Spirit is in us praying on our behalf. There are so many moments in life when it is inappropriate to say to somebody, this is for God's good. There are so many moments in life when it's inappropriate to use providence as a pastoral care technique. There are these moments in life when that doesn't work. It's just meaningless. And, 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 and you can't ever say that there, in any way is this okay. Because it's not. Because what you're going through is terrible and it's meaningless and all you can do is groan and know. This is the point of Romans 8. That this is part of the groaning of creation. You are the creation. You are groaning. And all we can do is groan and weep and somehow hope and pray that God the Spirit is groaning within us and will through that groaning bring God's new world to birth. That somehow, even in that, this meaningless suffering, the groaning we do will be caught up into Romans 8 groaning. And somehow in that, the kingdom moves forward. See, we've got to learn how to do that. We've got to learn how to suffer for righteousness sake by, by seeing it through the lens of the story of the Bible. We've also got to learn how to suffer in meaningless ways by seeing it through the lens of the story of the Bible. Church of the Lamb and Church of the Incarnation. Jesus went up. The Spirit came down and the kingdom goes forward. And how does it go forward? By our witnessing to the life of Jesus through lives that are cruciform by reenacting the life pattern of the suffering of the Christ. That's how we witness. Let's pray.